0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm really looking forward to listening to today's interview that Lex Pelger did with my good friend Matt Palomary. In fact, that interview was conducted right here in my little office that uh, technically, I guess, is the actual physical psychedelic salon. But the truth is this room is so small that only Lex and Matt could fit in it for the interview. And so I was out in the living room visiting with Mike and Brian from Symposia at the time. As you know, Matt Palamary has been involved with the salon for many years now, and he and I go way back to both the Palenque Conferences and to many ayahuasca ceremonies. In fact, we actually met when we wound up sitting next to one another at an ayahuasca ceremony almost 20 years ago. Obviously, uh, we have a lot of tales that we can tell about one another, but (laughs) we're going to save those for another day. And uh, I guess that I should also point out that while his books are published under the name Matthew Palomary, and while he usually goes by Matt, in our little psychedelic community out here on the coast, most people call him Matteo. However, I still think of him by the name that I gave him, which is Casawack. I call him that because, well, to me, he's a cross between Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac, a wild man and a great writer. But (laughs) when he told his mother about my name for him, she said, Oh, that's not right. You are a much better writer than Kerouac. (laughs) And I have to admit that she was absolutely correct about that. And if you don't believe me, well, then try reading On the Road, and then follow it by reading Mateo's latest novel, Nothing, right afterwards, and I think you'll see what I mean. So now let's join Lex Pelger and Matt Palomary as they talk about ways in which shamanism and writing intersect. Today's show is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon.
1: Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon lets you chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Find out more at patreon.com symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This week, I'm pleased to be bringing you an interview with the expert on shamanism, Matthew Palamari. During the Blue Dot Tour and after our great storytelling night in San Diego, I got to stay at Lorenzo's house and interview his friend the next morning. He's a very impressive writer. And his ideas of using shamanistic techniques for creative people, for writers, is a fascinating part of his work. Please don't call him a shaman, as you will hear. Most of the good ones don't want that title. But he is someone who has studied these things for a very long time and can hold forth about some of the similarities you see between different traditions. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be in 2.0. I'm still in the mix, and I woke up on this side of the dirt. So it's a good day.
1: <laughs> Always a good day. Yes, sir. Um, so I actually wanted to start more with your knowledge of shamanism because it sounds like you've been studying that a very long time. How did that first become something on your radar that you started exploring?
2: Well, it's interesting because um, I'm a, I'm a writer, obviously. I'm a perspiring writer, and I've been at it for a long time. I've been over 30 years and uh, teaching for 25 at major writers' conferences. And I was interviewed a while back. for. I'm always interviewed for writer's things all the time. And uh, they asked me about that that question, how did I get into it? And I started to really think about it. And uh, I kind of perked into my head because uh, I started thinking way back. So now what I've been telling people is I've been studying shamanism all of my life. And as a kid, I loved Tarzan. I loved the wild man. I remember jumping in creeks as a kid and like, oh, okay, where are the alligators? You know, and I want a knife to put in my mouth and all that cool stuff. So I was fascinated with the wild man. And then um, when I was in my late teens, 20-ish, and I was in the Air Force, I got turned on to Carlos Castaneda. And I got really obsessed with that. And then I started studying more and more. And eventually, um, to make a long story short, I took an honors course in anthropology. Well, f- well, first off, I was writing shamanism stuff anyway. Um, I'm—I uh, may tell that story. How my my first one of my short stories got me connected with Terrence McKenna and all this other things that came out of that. But I was very much uh, into the shamanism, and it became more and more of a theme in my writing. So. I had been researching shamanism and anthropology on my own, and when I took an anthropology course and I got into it, I was like, this is this is everything I've been doing on my own, you know? And I was getting a lot of research from the UCSD library here in San Diego, uh, which is renowned, especially for its uh, medical stuff. So um, I really got into that, and I was reading it, and, and I hit it off with that professor who actually had been, um, he went to UCLA with Carlos Castaneda, and his honors course was uh, A Forest of Symbols, Orientation and Meaning to South American Indian Religions. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'm there. And I aced that course. And um, I became, through that, really a specialist. So I'm all about shamanism worldwide. Because shamanism is universal and every single religion in the world goes back to shamanism. I was researching a book um, and I was actually researching lycanthropy which is the werewolf mythos, which actually ties into shapeshifting. And I had the revelation that shapeshifting goes back primarily it's worldwide, but it primarily goes back to the Amazon where it is the largest concentration of visionary plants. And I made the connection between visionary plants and shapeshifting. And that's what sucked me in. And then I, I, I studied um ayahuasca for ten years before I found it. And then, when I got to go, and people told me, "Oh, you're brave, you went to the jungle and all that, and I'm like, "No, I could not not go. I have to go i have to there's no question. I don't care what it costs it's just no I have to do this and I did, and I got taken in by the shamans, um and like I say, now it's coming up on twenty years, and I'm facilitating things more now, and I've learned a lot, but um all of the things of the universality of shamanism have come to bear upon me. And I read tons and tons of stuff, anthropology. And then um, a lot of what I did in the jungle and a lot of what I learned through ayahuasca, I learned through ayahuasca. Then I went back and read the books. But I kind of already knew it, that makes any sense. Um, I have a book. I, I, I wrote most of it, but it was a collaboration called The Infinity Zone. And it's about perfect form and motion. And it, and it gets very deeply into sacred geometry. And everything I learned was from ayahuasca. Then I follow up with the other books, so um everything now in my life goes back to shamanism. It underpins all of my writing. um, I lecture on it frequently um, and i and i and I now can say uh, without hesitation, I'm an authority on shamanism and i and I love on my webpage uh, www.mattpalamary.com M-A-T-T-P as in Paul A-L-L A as in Mary A-R-Y dot com It's author, editor, shamanic explorer. Um, I will not, and I refuse, get this out there world and universe. I would never ever refer to myself or call myself a shaman. People have done it. I even, I get, uh, if you're familiar with, uh, I feel a little bad about it, but if you're familiar with Sea Realm Podcast and KMO, which we have some history, and he was interviewing me, I think, the first time, and he called me a shaman, and I went off on him, and I felt bad afterwards, because I kind of went overboard, but I don't, homie, don't play that, Um, but so when I started teaching in the writers' conferences, and I made my name as a weirdo writer, so to speak, um, my workshop was originally Horror, Fantasy, and Science Fiction. And as the millennium came in 2000 and all that, I noticed that there was getting more spirituality into my workshop. So now it's been changed to fantastic fiction. So it's fantastic fiction. It's ph, P-H-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C fiction. And it's literature of the visionary, supernatural, metaphysical, horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And I wrote a book, which also uh, it took first place in the International Book Awards for writing and editing. And it's fantastic fiction, a shamanic approach to story structure. And that's what I primarily teach in lecture, and that's what my workshop is now called. And uh, I can do an hour lecture. I can do a weekend lecture. I can do a week. I can go on forever.
1: Uh, wow. Combining two of the oldest arts that we have, shamanism yes. and storytelling.
2: Yeah. Good.
1: And, go ahead. and I, I was curious, as you studied shamanism, what features seemed common to these different paths that you are looking at? You know, Whether practices uh, with or without entheogens or um, what brought them together?
2: Yeah, great. So when I was studying in, in anthropology courses and things, one of the things I read was the myth of the flood, how universal it was. And I read about, you know, I read some really, really sort of minimalized, arcane religions, for lack of better words. Or I, I, I prefer to say spirituality over religion. That's a whole thing. I, I mentioned that um, last night. But um The universality, first off, that the myth of the flood was everywhere. Like, whoa, you kidding me? And I got my attention. I started looking and I realized if you study shamanism worldwide, you'll realize that uh, the beliefs, the core beliefs are the same, whether entheogens or not, whether one of the things I'm proud about in my historical novel, Land Without Evil, um, is the fact that it's visionary experience and I did it all. It was all fasting and dancing. I did it without substances and I did that on purpose because I got myself into high schools. And this is back in, well, that was came out in November of 99. So I had full-on tripping, visionary experience, but there were no substances. So it was being accepted, and I got, and I worked really hard because I wanted to get not only the literary nod, but I wanted to get the anthropological nod, and I got them both, which I was really proud of because I really worked hard to make things right. That particular book um, is, is about the first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America, but it's told from the Indians' point of view wow yeah and it's very deep 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 shamanism um so it's a universal you'll see they dress the same other things you know like quartz crystals are sacred um other things and every single religion in the world every single one has its roots in shamanism period end of story buddhism really lines up nicely Taoism is really in line with it they're all they're all shamanic in the beginning so i wanted to go back and bypass all the crap you know i was Raised Catholic, although I rebelled when I was about six. There's a bunch of stories about that, too. Um, But I wanted to really go back to the roots and find out the universal thing. And what I like to call myself now is a cosmic citizen. And I just want to mention briefly that everything I'm telling you right now, universal, blah, 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 this is all in my universe. Um, I never force anything on everybody. I have 13 books in print. To me, they're all offerings. You can take it or leave it. I'm not arguing with anybody. I'm not forcing my point of view, but this is based on my experience uh, so far and what I've done.
1: That's what you can never argue with. And I would be curious, how did uh, high school kids and young people respond to this as you got to go out to those places?
2: Here's the thing. Shamanism has many definitions. There's the wounded healer. Uh, One of the primary definitions of shamanism is being a bridge. So in my case, which I've managed to do, Knock on wood. That was on my head, by the way. Um, Okay, so shamanism is a bridge. So uh, traditionally shamans would go uh, visit cosmic realms, visionary realms, multiple dimensions, whatever their experience happens to be, soul retrieval, whatever they happen to be doing, go out to these places that have a completely different set of rules of what reality really is, sometimes quite insane or seemingly so, get the knowledge, and then come back and share it and make the connection between there, wherever that is, infinitely, and coming back to bring that knowledge. And to be able to, truly in shamanism, to be able to go out and be completely psycho and navigate these psycho places. I'm being a little facetious, but to navigate these places and then to come back and be like sort of totally normal in the world. That is what shamanism is really all about, is all of that. So it's all about bridging. So what I've been working on a lot is bridging. Uh, particularly, uh, so in my writing life, Ray Bradbury was one of my mentors. Charles Schultz, Charlie Brown was a dear. He was like a uncle slash dad to me. Uh, Chuck Champlin, who was a leading LA Times film critic for 25 years. These guys all took me in years and years ago. I was the youngest, They were my. they became my colleagues. They were my mentors, they became my colleagues and I was the youngest workshop leader for 15 years at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, which is major. And um, in the um, shamanic slash entheogenic world, I have other mentors. Uh, Stanley Krippner is a very, very dear friend of mine. We're fans of each other. We just love the hell out of each other. Land Without Evil is one of his favorite books, and I've been told by a mutual friend he has it up on his mantelpiece um, in a place of honor. And he told me he's read it twice, and um, he loves it, and he recommends it to everybody. Well, my latest book, which, by the way, uh, if these go in order, thank you, Lorenzo. I heard he gave me a really good plug for this. So my latest book is called Nothing, which is a sequel to Dreamland, and it's a book about computer-generated dreaming. I wrote the first book with uh, a very dear friend of mine. He left the planet about 10 years ago, but he was a famous DJ back in the 70s. He was one of the very first people to break uh, like Hendrix and Zeppelin on FM radio. Uh, He was big in Pittsburgh, and it was a big transmitter, so he was brother love. And as a minor, minor little side story, he was brother love, and he'd go around in robes, you know, and he'd have all his crew with him, and he was like Mr. Psychedelic Guy. He loved to smoke weed, but he never did any psychedelics until he met me, and I took him on his first mushroom trip, and that was a whole, we had a blast. But anyway, we wrote that book, and uh, now um, there's a computer game called Counter-Strike, Okay, my nephew, he's not my nephew by blood, but he's my nephew for all intents and purposes. As a matter of fact, his middle name is Matthew after me. Um, him and, and his, his older brother was there last night. Um, you didn't really get to meet him, but he looks like Jesus, I tease him. I always call him Jesus, and then he calls me Uncle Moses. But Geordie the younger one, is one of the top three international Counter-Strike players in the world. And Stan Krippner... Uh, aside from being the guy who brought the shaman rolling thunder to the Grateful Dead, um, he did big thought experiments uh, at uh, Grateful Dead concerts. He's best buddies with Mickey Hart. He ran the Maimonides Dream Research Institute in New York in the 70s for like 10 years. Stan's a legend, and he's just an amazing, wonderful person. Like I said, we is I have a similar love affair with Jim Fadiman. I can tell you Jim Fadiman's stories, too, that we got these really deep connections that go back before we even realized it. But anyway, in this book, Nothing, Stan agreed to be a character. And it's named after my nephew, Jordan Nothing Gilbert from Counter-Strike, right? And Jordy's in his, you know, he's like 25 now. And Stan is like the elder elder, and I'm in between. And one of my purposes in the book was to make that connection, that, that bridge between Stan the legend and Jordy the Legend and there's like 60 years between them and I happen to be 61 myself so I'm like right in the middle but I, I love these guys and I have very deep connections with them in a deep way so that was a big part of my book of, of writing nothing and it starts off with the computer generated dreaming and the leftovers from that that came in dreamland and uh, it ends with ayahuasca I'll just say that and I, 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 can, I can just imagine what Lorenzo said and I won't, so I won't get into that but um, it's all about bridging
1: yeah. Lorenzo actually called it the best thing he'd ever read about an ayahuasca experience, oh. which is about as high a praise as you're going to get for anything.
2: Hey, Especially from him, right? Mr. Mr. Jaded, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- through the years, uh, aside from the different studies I've done, I've I've worked in a number of different traditions. I even took a very intense two-year shamanic study course where I got to do the whole hole pilgrimage, uh, the, the the peyote hunt, the all-night ceremony, the pilgrimage. That's where I got this... You know, Mount Camato. Um And I've done all those things. And actually at the peak of it, there were, it was a two-year period where I, I sort of kept track. And I was doing ayahuasca 30 times a year in wow. like three different traditions uh, at the peak of it, along with tons of other things. Um, so it's really spoken to me and it's become my place. Um, and I feel it's really important to carry on and bridge and share with this great work that you guys are doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have survived the, the leap from 1.0 1 1. to 2.0.
1: You made it, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of, sorry, so with that many different traditions that you're working with and presumably different plant medicines, did you have trouble navigating between these different worlds? Because sometimes uh, you know, traditions can be rather strict about how and what they work.
2: Interesting. That's a good question. You're, you're, you're very good, by the way. Um, I've done tons of interviews, You're so thank you for that. So uh, here's the thing. Um, Here's the thing that I've gone through. During the time I was deep in the ayahuasca session, I was working with a very high-level personal coach, someone who worked with big Hollywood movie stars and producers, uh, things of that nature. And um, she had some other clients, and anybody who worked with ayahuasca, She told him, stop, you can't be doing that, it's messing you up, don't do it. Every single one, except me. And she told me to keep working with it. And she pushed me. And I worked with her for four or five years, once a week, an hour session. It was expensive, but she was good. And um, I struggled for three or four years with the process of ayahuasca and her process of finding the wounds and the traumas that needed to be found. She loved it. I called, she was more like a surgeon. Ayahuasca brings everything up. It just throws it in your face and goes, deal with it, right? But she was very precise and she encouraged me and I, and I really went through three or four years of which end up at struggling and I finally brought it all together. So ultimately in the end, the whole process of growth is the same. The goals are the same. The approaches are, there's a multitude of approaches and I've done, over the years, I've done, tons and tons of personal therapy with people and I know now for the most part um, which psychedelics can be used in which way at what point to help somebody to get to a certain place by ultimately following the same process which underlies it all and it all has to do with um, personality and integration and I won't get into that now that's like you want to do a podcast on that we can do that but I mean that that goes on very deeply but the point is um, there is actually a process, and when I first connected with Terrence McKenna to find out that there could actually be spirituality and psychedelics for me was a huge revelation because I had an insane younger childhood with no guidance, and I was doing some really crazy kamikaze shit back then. Um, well, maybe I still do it sometimes now, but anyway, the fact that there was that, and then when I started learning from the shamans and this coach, I've managed to bring it all together now, and um, it's also infused my writing. I also want to mention very quickly. This is in my my fantastic fiction book because something you said. Um, the core, one of the core aspects of shamanic thought, is the journey to the underworld, where you get in in South America. You get swallowed by the jaguar. Other places, you get dismembered. Uh, other places, they take all your bones out and replace them with crystals. But it's all this same thing, ultimately being swallowed by the jaguar. That whole concept. Well, that concept, which goes back pretty much to prehistoric primeval times, is actually the core of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. That's where it really came from. And if anybody spends any time uh, studying Campbell, particularly the hero with a thousand faces, you will find that all those elements are actually shamanic. And he'll, he even probably even uh, at some point, I'm sure he's come out and even said it. But that was another thing. And so the whole creativity and the sh- uh, shamanic exploration i was doing and i was also exploring the whole creativity of writing i've managed to now over all these years get it all together so now i have a very good grasp of it wow
1: that that is very powerful and it does go all the way back orpheus had to go to Hades to find yeah. his love
2: exactly yes
1: and so i think something that happened in generation before mine we got to see in zigzag zen that it was psychedelics that helped turn on entire generation to the possibilities of zen buddhism and buddhist practice and it feels like for my generation there is more these psychedelics helped us to understand about the shamanism that people are now talking about And i think they're probably a lot of people listening right now who are curious, who know these drugs are helpful, but would like to figure out ways that they could make rituals for themselves, but also to find a path that might work for them. What would be your advice to a young seeker who these words are really resonating for, have had their mushroom trips, but want to take it to the next level, maybe that doesn't involve drugs or involve drugs in a different way?
2: That's very good. Well, At the risk of sounding extremely modest, I suggest reading my books, particularly uh, Spirit Matters, my memoir, because I, I wrote that not only as a memoir, but I wrote it as somewhat of a guidebook for younger people. Like you know, way back when I was in the crazy younger days, I got strung out on on speed for a while, and things got nuts. And um, I learned a lot, but I learned the hard way. So I like to think, and I've and I've had this told to me hundreds and hundreds of times, that people can read that what I went through with my experiences, with what I knew at the time, which wasn't anything. Um. then they can go, okay, I don't have to do that. So they can read what I experienced, take off the level of how I got it to that point, and then they can go further without um having to go through all that crap. And I'm actually very impressed uh, listening to people last night when we did our little event there and listening to what Caitlin had to say and looking at her and how young she is to me. And I'm like, wow, she's gotten there at this point. Well, okay, she got from people like me and other people like Terrence or whoever, what she read, got to that point quickly. So she's at that age. She may be now, I I don't know how old she is. She's mid, late 20s, whatever it is, right? For argument's sake, late 20s. Well, where where I see her now is maybe where I was in my 40s. Because it took me that long and I didn't have much to go on. You know, I was totally on my own. And I actually, um, when I got really nuts about things, um, after doing a lot of things, I took a break for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. And Just I felt,
1: ne- felt it necessary.
2: I wanted to go baseline because I tell people, especially younger people now, is you're getting you're getting high all the time, that's all cool, and good and groovy and everything. But if you're getting high all the time, you get to a point where if you come back to baseline consciousness, baseline consciousness actually becomes an altered state. And we actually go through our lives going through altered states. And, and there are subtleties that you don't realize in the beginning until you spend a lot of time. And for me, for better or for worse, I've always been a kamikaze. And I'm a renowned hardhead. And most things I've, like, blown my brains out. And then, oh, microdosing? Oh, what's that? Oh, okay, I'll try that. And that'd be, like, some years after repeated me blowing my brains out, you know? But um, it's uh, to read and study and find out. The important thing of this work is integrity. And I've known through the years a number of people who get what I call guru-itis. And it drives me nuts. Now, I'm a writing mentor. I've got hundreds, maybe thousands of writing students. And I've been teaching all the years and all that. And if you want to call me a writing mentor, that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I've had Ray Bradbury as a mentor. I've had all these guys, right? And I'm carrying on what they taught me and carrying it forward. So you can call me a writing mentor. I'm okay with that. But when I start to get made into a guru, that's when I back off. And I was actually about 10 years ago, I was leading ayahuasca sessions for four or five years and these people started really making me into a guru. So I bailed because um, they get caught up and they they don't realize the power of the plants. And in my humble opinion, when you're doing this best work, you are really channeling, you're bringing it through. And um, I always love to make this reference. Um, I do not consider myself a genius, I'll I'll own the fact that I'm a legend in my own mind. And that's okay. That's my playground. But um, some years ago they did a survey of all the geniuses they could find in the world at the time. And the one thing that they all had in common, every one of them, every one of them said, it ain't me. So when I'm in my element, when I'm lecturing, whether it's at a writer's conference or at Public Think for Shamanism or whatever it is, um, I never rehearse. I don't write anything down. I know this stuff. I've been living it. I am it. Um, I think that's a funny little story I could tell you in a minute, but uh, I am it and I know it, so when people come at me now I know I get tapped in, and sometimes I surprise the hell out of myself what comes out of my mouth you know, because it is it's it's, it's it's beyond me, and I'm just figured out how to tune into that place on the dial to get that information, so a little a quick funny side story, I won't go too long years ago when I was married and I went to the jungle and I did the whole suing the whole dieta, the ayahuasca dieta, and when you do it and you're doing all those plants and you're on the restricted diet, you end up smelling like the jungle and that was part of the diet if they're going to go hunting, they would do the dieta and they wouldn't have the human smells so they could go in and literally kind of be invisible in the jungle so I came back from the jungle and my girlfriend says to me, or oh, my wife at the time she says you smell like the jungle and I looked at her and I gave these big white eyes and I said I am the jungle. That got her excited in a good way. (laughs) I bet. Yeah. So um, it is universal. Um, There's a lot out there. I've seen connections now that I did not know. And so for me, it's very important to reach out to young people so they can understand. And the integrity is the utmost importance. There have been shamans in South America, and these women go, and then they take advantage of them. And these women like, oh, They have the ayahuasca experience and their heart opens because ayahuasca is about opening the heart. And they have this heart-opening experience and they look up and there's a shaman and then they, they get this attachment. You know, like kids in school, right? You fall in love with the teachers and all that shit, right? The hot teachers, right? Like that. And then the ones who are at a particular level who don't really have integrity can take advantage. And that to me is like the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate cardinal sin. Same with being a writing teacher. I've worked with a lot of people with their memoirs, and they're opening themselves to me, and they're totally being vulnerable with me. And to take advantage of that is so wrong. So it's very important. Anybody you know, if you're working with them in any sort of mentor position to have that that integrity, this is the most important thing. And people have to know that they're safe with you. You know, when you do an ayahuasca session, if you're leading a session, you have to make sure it's a safe container. You have to make sure they can be vulnerable. And that's important. And there's a lot of people out there um, who who have guruitis. itis uh, On one more little side thing, and don't hit me again. Um, I was at, I've been to Burning Man twice. And I was speaking about shamanism, as a matter of fact. And um, I was there a few years ago, and I was walking around, and there were all these gurus with their followers. And, dude, it almost turned my stomach. And now that I'm older and I'm jaded, I'm like, man, you don't even know what you're talking about, you know, and, and, all, and all your sheep that are following you. And it's like it's kind of really a turnoff for me. So um, it's sort of one of my little pet peeves. The other one, and I'll stop again. I promise you I will. But this is a very important one. The way that ayahuasca has been treated by Hollywood makes me totally insane. It's misrepresented. Now, I I, I got no bones of saying I'm an authority on shamanism and no bones about saying I'm an authority on uh, ayahuasca. Even the guys in the jungle, the guys that take care of me, they all give me the top-notch respect because I've taken everything they can throw at me. Now, um, I was a big fan of Breaking Bad. I love that show for numerous reasons, being a writer, all that stuff. And there's another show on called The Path, and the character who was Jesse... In Breaking Bad is in the path And I watched like the first or second Episode and they had this thing where he goes off To this ayahuasca session It was such bullshit I got really pissed off I was with my friends I turned off the TV and I Started raging you know they had this like Guru guy in a robe playing Stupid music and hot chicks dancing It was total bullshit And I saw another one uh, Some show Don Cheadle was in it and they were a corporate Thing and they all went off for a night and did ayahuasca And it was bullshit and it made me crazy. It made me nuts because it's not mis- – it, it misrepres- misrepresents the reality, the true reality of it, and it makes me crazy. So it's been one of my really pet peeves. I, I was doing an interview last year, and I, and it was being recorded, and I started going off, and I started saying a lot of bad words because I got so passionate about it. So I'm. it's one of my things. That's crap. It's not the real thing, and it's important for me to people to have truth.
1: Do you have any favorite representations you've seen, either fictional or in a documentary, that you think – are are good, helpful learning experiences?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, sorry to be Mr. Plugger, but my work, um, I've struggled all of my writing career to take those things that are often non-rational and hard to articulate and put them in a way using words and metaphor that people can have some sense of what the experience is about without having to be there. So there are those. Um, a friend of mine, Sedi... Gersh, I can't remember his last name he's gonna kill me, but he did a nice little documentary on ayahuasca um He's also a specialist in andean uh Keros, and uh and I've studied a lot with a lot of them too um so that's been a pretty good one um and there are some other ones that are good um but in terms of the mainstream media and what they think is ayahuasca and what isn't in the representations it like I said, it just makes me nuts so if I get any opportunity to change that, I'm gonna do it because. People can go off on these weird things, and they, they hear a little something, or i 've got enraged a few times. There was someone i 'm not going to mention any names, but I was in the jungle with someone some years ago, and we were doing five sessions as a group, and they only did three and then they came back and wrote this book on ayahuasca like they were a guru and me and my mentors we went little nuts, so it 's been very important for me to represent in the right way, and I think um My memoir, again, uh, Spirit Matters, um, shows my path, shows me from being a little kid first hyperlating, hyperventilating, you know, and then sniffing glue and then discovering, you know, acid and and all that. It's all it's all in there. So to me, it's important and it's not something if you continue on this path. You're going to get opened up in ways you may or may not like. And if you continue to push the envelope, then you're going to hit the dark. And you have to hit the dark. If you really want to grow in spirit, you have to experience the light and the dark. And if you continue with ayahuasca, it's going to take you to both places. And you're going to have those moments. Terrence McKenna, I forget how he articulated it, but he used to say, if you don't have that moment where you think, oh, shit, what did I do this for? And I took too much, then you didn't do enough. So if you don't have those moments and uh, when you learn the light and the dark, then you can find the center because the center is really where it's at. And I know people who, oh, I just want to feel good and I just want to do ecstasy and I just want to embrace the light. Sorry, folks, but that's bullshit. Yes, embrace it and love it, but also the same for the dark because you cannot have one without the other, and in the end, they're ultimately equal. And for me personally, I always love to say fear and death are my two greatest teachers. And if if you don't embrace the dark, you're missing the point because you've got to be able to navigate the light and the dark equally from that center point.
1: Do you hear that a lot from people coming to you saying, well, I had this one bad experience, so I'm never going back again?
2: Absolutely. And I, um, I'm often uh, – well, I, I've, also, okay, so I've also seen people like one guy had a really bad uh, problem with alcohol. He did one ayahuasca session, got his ass beat, and that was the end of his alcohol problem. Here's the thing. People would say through the years, oh, I did acid, it was bad acid, I had a bad trip. That's bullshit. You had the psychological stuff that was inside of you, your shadow stuff, which is buried, which this is really ultimately all shadow work, is buried. And shadow is what you don't want to see in yourself and what you deny. So there's the thing I'm sure you and and listeners have heard the whole concept of set and setting. Right? Well, where's your head at? And what's going on below the surface? And, you know, I'm just... I'm just saying this stuff. If, if you were somebody who happened to be molested by a child and you, and, uh, and you buried that your whole life and you have some weird behavior and you don't know why for whatever reason, and then you do something like ayahuasca or acid um, and that comes up. And you, where did that come from, right? And you can have a really horrible experience. But ultimately, and, and I can say this for sure with ayahuasca, the darkest horrible experiences are probably some of the most beneficial once you integrate it and you realize that you called out an aspect of your shadow that you were denying. So, you know, when you're in the jungle and you're drinking and you're doing the dieta and you're having a limited diet and you're doing these other plants and their stuff comes up and you're by yourself, there's nobody to project your shit onto. There's nobody to blame but yourself. And you're with yourself and you realize, my God, geez, give yourself a break, you know, cut yourself some slack. So um, even bad experiences are good. But you have to be very careful when you're facilitating Uh, Particularly like with ayahuasca You can't be taking anything like uh, Any SSRIs or MDMA Or anything like that that affects serotonin You're looking for trouble and you could You can get into convulsions and die So you have to be very aware of what you're doing And how you're doing it And you have to be prepared to deal with what's going to come up So when I screen people for things I I do a good check If you just had some bad experience If you were raped two weeks ago You're going to flip out in a session Because it's going to come out Um, You know So it's all about learning. Another thing of shamanism is that shamanism is about mastering energy. And the path, the shamanic path is called the power path. And you're trying to find that center that I've been mentioning on and off here. When you find that center, that's your place of power. What happens in the middle of a hurricane? Nada, right? That's the place of power. You're not moved. So if you're traveling through a heavenly, beautiful, uh, colored realm, or you're in the darker depths of hell, it's some of the most sickest, twisted city you've ever seen, if you've had enough experience, you realize you're navigating. And even though you can enjoy one and have horrible feelings in the other one, you you know how to stay in the center throughout both of them, and you stay that way, and you learn. And something you said earlier made me think about this too. I want to mention very briefly. In indigenous cultures, particularly in South America, in indigenous cultures, <clears throat> sleeping, dreaming, waking consensual reality, for them, they're all the same. It's a continuum. And they carry the same weight. So they can give their dreaming as much um, attention and energy as they can in their visions. And you know yourself, anybody who's listening knows, you could be in a dream and be doing the weirdest shit. Right, floating or flying or breathing underwater. And and in that moment, it's real to you and you're totally accepting of it. And there's lots of reasons for that, which I won't get into now. That's a whole other lecture. But the point is for them, um, everything carries the same weight. So what has happened to me through all my years of experience with with psychedelics and bringing in the spirituality is that what happened to me in my dreams and in my visions began to cross over into my waking state. And they all started to blend together. And When they started really doing that in earnest, is when the magic started really coming into my life, my waking life, and I've been through some tough situations that I would not have been able to survive if I hadn't have done the work I had done. That I can. That that, that that's a fact. Um, so, states of consciousness is a continuum, and they they give them all the same amount of weight. And you start to learn the the crossing of the realities, and I have a whole thing on that too. But I won't I won't go off on a tangent this time. Th-
1: that is fascinating stuff because it. It's it's hard for some people in this current generation because it's so often that we have some of our first spiritual experiences on a psychedelic at a party or at a festival. And it's not a safe space for it. And there aren't that many safe spaces for it. I'm actually – here Lorenzo has at least two copies of Aldous Huxley's The Island right here. Yep. Uh, beautiful little old editions too. Yeah. And I still think it's the best thing I've ever seen written of what a psychedelic uh, society could look like in the future where it, it has integrated uh, – Points In your life where you have a certain experience, what would you lay out in your uh, ideal world of a society that has a more integrated approach to these drugs and to these practices?
2: Yeah, well, a big part of it, which I'm very pleased to see now, is the acceptance that's starting to happen. Uh, You know, um, I'm familiar familiar with Charlie Grobe. So Charlie's another good friend of mine. And uh, Charlie's done – mine and Lorenzo's – but, you know, we we have – Adventures in history that you want to know about will get us all in trouble. But anyway, um, point being, I've had deep, deep, deep respect for Charlie for his work because he's been um, taking the medical approach. You know, he did the first uh, study of um, mushrooms for uh, death anxiety. So Charlie's been pushing it in that direction with the legitimacy of, you know, medical, uh, you know, doctor approved things and i've been pushing it in the literary front and we always we cheer each other on in different ways because i'm taking it into the mainstream um in another way and as i mentioned last night um i was very pleased when spirit matters won the san diego book award for the best spiritual book because it's all about my drug experiences and it starts with an ayahuasca session it ends with the ayahuasca diet and here i am in san diego and there's a this. You know, There's a lot of Christians and right-wing people and all that stuff here. So to be able to win and be taken as a spiritual book and not as a drug book um, was very pleasing to me, and that was one of my goals. Just like I mentioned with Land Without Evil where I had visionary experience, but it was all fasting and dancing, which allowed me to get into schools. It's funny, those little things, you look for the cracks when you can get in and and break open new ground. So to have it in a structured way, and, and one of the conflicts between Huxley and Tim Leary is that Tim Leary just wanted to turn everybody on. Huxley was totally against that. He was like this needs to be really structured, you know. Um one of the things one of the other great things that Charlie Grobe did is, is he was the chief medical witness in the first ayahuasca case um, with the uh, UDV. Are you familiar with the details of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that set the precedent. This is religious freedom. Uh, as Casey Hardison will be more than happy to tell you after his 10 years in the slammer over in England there in Cognitive Liberty. And when you approach it in a way that is structured with structure and guidance, which is the most important thing, that's when you get the things. Back then and even when I was doing it, um, you know, when when I first did acid, it was around 1970, 71. And I was in Boston. And we used to get it from MIT and the chemist's name was My Favorite Martian. And they were four-way hits. And it took me doing it about eight times before I could handle one. Wow! But I was going out and I was blowing my brains out and tripping and I was with some hardcore people. And there was no guidance. There was no, I didn't know, nobody knew anything. We were just frying our brains out and I did that for quite a while. And then when I ended up some years after that taking the break for 13 years and then when I got exposed to Terrence McKenna and realized there could be spirituality in it, bang, it took me in a whole new direction.
1: Wow. Yeah. It is kind of the hope uh, we hope to see is bring together all these different models. You have your literary attack. Charlie Grobe has his medical attack. And to take something of Huxley's Brahmin approach to psychedelics and a structured, along with Timothy Leary's belief that you can put these drugs in the American consciousness and people can take it, which was – Naive, perhaps, but also really beautiful and trusting of everyone. And to see those ideas hopefully come together in this third generation where we take the wisdom of the biochemistry and drug interactions and then combine that with all of these practices that have been going on for millennia where there is a whole other huge branch of knowledge that is in a silo apart from the peer-reviewed medical research. And the hope is that, especially here in the West, that we'll have more universities that have shamans at them and vice versa.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting in my own experience. Back, I was, with, I have a long exp- uh, experience with technology. I started off working on the tube equipment in the Air Force, and I went through tubes to transistors to solid states to integrated circuits to microcomputers to mini computers to mainframes back to PCs back to networks. I was, wow. a, I was a big IT manager, so it was great because I learned how energy works because electronics is actually the study of how uh, electricity works in and, and electronics. You know, so it was a great basis. With the shamanism. But I was doing things when I was a manager with people because I understood the energetics between people and shamanism. And the MBAs and the PhDs were freaking out. They were afraid of me because they didn't know how I was doing it. And they thought he must be doing something illegal and all this crazy stuff that they they couldn't handle. And I was following shamanic concepts that I had learned. So it's important. And I also want to mention that um, substances, altered states, aren't always necessary. Some people don't need them. And the process that goes on underneath that I referred to about psychological integration and, the, and the being on the power path and becoming a man or a woman of power doesn't always need outside help from psychedelics and plants. They're wonderful tools. It's my path. But some people just don't need it. Uh, people can just do it. People can do it through yoga, through fasting, through different types of self-discipline. They're, as they say, you know, it's a cliche, but all roads lead to Rome. And when you start to understand the underlying processes of what's going on, um, then you understand and you can talk to different people and know how to navigate different things to help them rediscover who they really are. Because that's what this is all about. I'm not learning so much about ayahuasca. I'm rediscovering the truth. And for me, when I take ayahuasca, especially in the jungle, that to me in, in my universe is the voice of Mother Earth. So I can get get out and hang out with Mom and talk to Mom for a while and say, hey, Mom, what's up? You know, and um, there's this whole thing um, in shamanism or whatever, archetypes about there's the, um, there's the dark feminine and the light feminine and the dark masculine and the light masculine. They're primary archetypes. Ayahuasca is considered to be the dark feminine. And it's also considered to be a fire medicine. And fire is transformation and purify, purification and, you know, alchemy and all of that stuff. It's all tied in the same yeah, way.
1: The first step, burning off that excess.
2: The dross. Yeah. And there are all these things, in which I won't get into now, but there's all these things about fire and gold that relate that and the elemental, elemental spirits um, and energies. As a matter of fact, for the purpose of discussions, you could say spirit, you could say energy, they're the same thing. And when you start to see it and you start to realize that everything is indeed energy and everything you do is energy and everything, everything is energy. I mean, even now I'm talking into this microphone, right? I'm creating energy with my vocal cords. It's going into this thing, you know, it's getting through process, maybe a little bit of filtering to take out the noise, blah, blah, blah. You're storing it there. Whenever, whenever anybody hears this, they're going to be hearing what I'm doing here and look at how many permutations and uh, shifts and changes that that uh, energy has been through. And then, then parlay it out, right? And there could be, you know, thousands of people listening to this at the exact same moment. It's, it's, it's remarkable, but it's all energy, you know? Totally. That's beautiful.
1: It it makes me uh, wonder, you sound like more than most, you got a lot of your wisdom directly from people and listening, but I'm always curious about what books uh, of the old books perhaps were the ones that were really influential for you that was a big shift in mindset when you found.
2: Well, first off, I've read all the Castaneda stuff a bunch of times, and then I read um, some critical, a lot of critical stuff about him also because he had some integrity issues, Uh, which came to to light. But it doesn't matter because you can find truth in anything. You can find truth with Catholics. You can find truth with Muslims, Buddhists. It doesn't matter. There's truth everywhere. But um, when I went, so then I went through the the 13 years of baseline. And I mean, I wouldn't even take an aspirin if I had a headache. Um, I wouldn't drink caffeine. I was hardcore and I was a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for 23 years. uh, But 13 of that And, um, when I finally found out about Terrence McKenna and I read his food of the gods, that was huge for me. That was my shift. Like, wow, I I can trip and there could be spirituality in it. Are you kidding me? And I went off on my own. This is probably 1995. I spent like a thousand bucks. I bought the pressure cooker. I bought all the shit and I grew my own mushrooms. And I and I went back in with a spiritual intention, and had things just start opening up to me like you wouldn't even believe, in in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And so, and I thought, okay, this is it. And I started going further and further along that path. So that was a good one. But um, there's just tons and tons of books. Uh, when I when I went to my first entheogenic conference, which was in '96 up in Frisco, uh, you know, Terence was there, Charlie was there, Sasha Shulgin and In Shulgin, uh, all these people were there. And I didn't have any money, and I had my credit cards. And I and I filled two shopping bags, 550 bucks worth of books. And I read them all.
1: That's the spirit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I just noticed the Secret Chief. This is a really good one. Uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, this was published by Maps, uh, by Myron Stolaroff, who Lorenzo knew really well. Um, there are some other ones. But I've been distilling all those things into my own and trying to take it to the next level, Um So for me, all of my mentors, they did the best that they could with what they had at their disposal. And then I can take it and I can prove upon it because I've had more at my disposal. And people like yourself and other younger people can take what I've done, like I mentioned earlier, and then take it. Here, here, you learn this from me. You don't have to go out and get whacked out on fucking crank, you know, and lose your mind for a while and get paranoid and all that stuff. You know, no, I did it for you, you know. So now go on and take it to the next level. One of the funny things people would tell me is um, over the years, they'd say thank you for going to the jungle for us. Mm -hmm. And it took me a few years to really figure it out, and it was true. Because when you heal yourself, you're healing the collective in one way or another. We're all connected. And when you do this work deeply and you stick with it for a while, you'll start to see your external realities shift and change, and you'll see that other people will come into your life that are reflecting those positive aspects of yourself. And you get this uh, resonance happening. I can tell just the way we're talking and all that and what you're asking me. You, you 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 get me. You know what I'm saying? Some people don't get me. And people who haven't been on this path, I, I spent many years scaring people on purpose.
1: Now you just do it naturally?
2: Yeah. L- long story there. But then I stopped doing it, but I realized I was still scaring them without trying. So then I had to really ease it out even more. And now sometimes, every once in a while, people are just afraid of me. And it's because um, I'm all about the darkness. I was told years ago that one of my purposes is if, that there's too much darkness. Is My purpose is to bring in the light. And if there's too much light, to bring in the darkness. And um, I've always been drawn to the darkness. My my first short story collection is uh, The Small Dark Room of the Soul. And I might mangle this quote, but it's been used by other people. And and it uh, it opens and it says... Throughout the ages, countless spiritual disciplines have urged us to seek the truth. Part of that truth lies within a small dark room. One, we are afraid to enter, dot, 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 dot. So I'm drawn, and when I do work with people and I've helped people, and whether it's an ayahuasca or some type of therapy, whether it's psychedelic or not, I will go into the dark with anybody, anywhere. Cause I've learned it and I grew up with it and it's now I realize that for the most part, all the stuff that you're afraid of is exactly what you need to be embracing. Of course, you're not going to walk out in front of a Mack truck. That's just instinct. I mean, you know, not like that extreme, but for the point of the things that you are afraid of is exactly what you should be looking for. Cause that's where the growth is.
1: Wow, thank you for that. That that's a beautiful uh, piece for us, I believe, to stop on. And thank you so much for your work in giving words to these concepts. Because once people hear them for the first time, then they're free to follow it. Just like you said about food of the gods. Mm -hmm. Ah, we can put this drug and spirituality thing together. And your work is taking that to the next level. So thank you so much. This yeah, is uh, Matthew Palomari. The book is Nothing, along with many other great books that you heard and we'll link to in the podcast notes. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for being a solid, good, great. You get A-plus for interviews, bro. Thank you. Cheers. And, uh, thanks. Special shout-out to Brett. Um, I'm blank on his last name, sorry. Brett Green, my platonic
1: life partner. Yes,
2: Brett Green, because he kind of dialed me in with you guys, so a special shout-out to Brett Green. All right. Thank you, brother.
1: All right, thank you. Cheers. Thanks so much. Cheers. Right. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating, leave us a review, or tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Witt for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman, who produced the show.